Now let's get into the word. Okay. Um, of all, uh, what was I saying? All the parts of James, we're in the last sermon of James, of all the parts, all the passages that we've done in James, this is probably the one that I wish more than any other that we had 10 weeks to just slow down and dig out and just look at, you know, there's so, there's, there are so many golden nuggets in here that we could mine and, and, and look at deeply. Uh, well, we can't. So what I can do, what we can do in this last section is really to draw out uh, the big themes, the beautiful uh, ideas, the, the outline of James' closing words of the church here as he encourages us to have patience uh, in and through this age and to fortify and establish our hearts as we wait for the sure and certain day of the Lord. And so let's, if you're able, stand together out of respect for the reading of God's Word and let's listen intently together to the reading of God's Word. This is from James chapter 5, verse 7, all the way through the end. This is God's inerrant Word. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Be patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. But you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And for, uh, we thank you for this whole book, Lord, full of wisdom, uh, full of encouragement, full of sincere uh, and helpful warnings to us. And also, Lord, as always, throughout the entire word, just full of the mercy and grace that you have provided for us in Jesus. 
And so, Lord, as we live in this evil age, as we are under constant attack by the enemy in various ways and to various degrees, we pray that you would teach us and show us how we might fortify our hearts against the attacks of the enemy. Lord, so that we might weather the storm, so that we might survive the bombings of this age, uh, knowing all along that ultimately it is you who establishes our hearts through your spirit. So that we might trust in that and have faith in that and be secure in that and in the sure and certain reality of the resurrection and of our new life and the new creation which you have promised us through Jesus. So Lord, help us to see these things. We pray, Lord, that you would illuminate our minds to your word. Without that, Lord, without your spirit guiding us and enlightening our minds to the text, Lord, we would be unable to see the true beauty of it, Lord. So we pray that you would give us minds to understand, you would give us hearts to obey, uh, and through your word, you would fulfill your promise to us to beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. In the opening scene of Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a scene where a German bombers coming in over London and uh, the Pevensey children, Peter and Edmund and, and, and Lucy and Susan are scrambling out of their house to get into the backyard into a makeshift air raid uh, as the incendiary bombs are going off all around them in their, in their basically suburban neighborhood right outside uh, the city of London. And that is, uh, that's a true story. That's a piece of history that, that C.S. Lewis pulled out and put into his story of the Blitz, of the German Blitz over England, over London in 1940. For nine months in 1940, wave after wave of German bombers came in uh, and bombed London in preparation for an invasion. Uh, I, ran across, I ran across some flyers from, from the period uh, of preparation flyers teaching people how to fortify their homes against these German incendiary bombs. And really for, for the year, really a year before the war started and all through the war, England as a nation mobilized more of its people and more of its resources, more than anybody else, to fortify their island against that German attack and against that, uh, uh, what they thought was going to be an imminent German invasion. And then this, these posters, it talks about, it shows it shows like the perfect suburban wartime home where the attic has been cleared of all clutter and treated with uh, flame retardant. And it encourages people to keep their sinks and their bathtubs full of water and be ready with firefighting supplies. It calls people to like soften the earth around the foundations of their home to uh, mitigate the shock waves from the bombs coming in. Uh, it called people to put up, uh, to pick the safest spot in the house, a room in the house, and, and cover it with sandbags to barricade them in in a safe room. Or if you were lucky enough to have a root cellar or something like that, the Defense, Department of Defense would give you supplies to create a makeshift air raid shelter that you could run to just like the Pevensies did. And even scary was, was they were expecting, at all times, they were expecting Hitler to use chemical warfare weapons. 
and he had the, Hitler developed sarin gas really early in the war and so everyone was issued a gas mask and everyone was required to carry the gas mask with them man woman and child that little little baby hood domes 24 hours a day in case of a gas attack I talk about stress talk about like real legitimate like stress and danger uh, that people were under uh, for nine months at any minute those air raid sirens might go off and wave after wave of German bombers would sweep across the city and the big saving grace that they had was the fairly new invention of radar which actually the Germans invented but the British perfected it and it gave them an early warning system to warn them when the bombers were coming so that they could duck into their fortifications. So when the bombers were 80 miles out in the channel, they knew they were coming and everybody could make their way to their fortifications uh, that they had prepared and, 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 and sit out and, and survive the bombing. And there's pictures of, of you know groups of young boys in different areas in bomb shelters in the, the tubes of the subway under the city playing cards laughing it up having a good time obviously not ideal conditions but because they were protected in their fortifications they were able to survive the bombings and outlast the German attack now we talked at length last week about how time is flying by into eternity now, the older you get, the faster time flies, and really that's good news when, in James, when God says, or when James says that our life is like a vapor, that's good news for us who are Christians who know the Lord, because it means that time is flying by into that sure and certain eternal reality that we'll have with Jesus, uh, and that's true. But as we all know, if you try to watch paint dry, <laughs> or you try to watch plants grow if you're a farmer and you try to watch your plants grow it can seem like it's dragging on forever can I get an amen and so here James encourages us to be patient in the, in the middle of this time like farmers who are growing a crop he says it's not you know there's we're gonna be here for a minute and so knowing that the great reality is coming soon God, or James is calling us in this last chapter to be patient. And the most important thing he says in this chapter is he's calling us to establish our hearts. And that word establish is a word that really means fortify. It's a, it's a word that's really taken from the idea of fortifying a city against attack. Uh, of fortifying the city walls and preparing a city against imminent uh, enemy attack and that is the reality of this age the patience we need and the endurance we need is often because of the fall and the curse and the enemy's attacks against us tempting us uh, and so really this is a picture what James is teaching us in this last section he's he's saying Fortify your hearts, strengthen them like the protections of the city around your heart. So that when the enemy attacks come, and come they will, you'll be able to weather the bombing of the enemy and outlast him until the coming of the day of the Lord, the sure and certain 
day of the Lord. And James lays this out in three levels of increasing severity. And that's how we're going to go through this last chapter. So the first level, I'm going to call this level one, is fortifying our hearts in everyday life. Fortifying our hearts in everyday life. Listen to verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. And there James put together, puts together the, the, varying, the varying shades of life, right? Suffering and cheerfulness. And cheerfulness and suffering. The suffering he's talking about, the NIV translate this as, as do any of you have trouble? Which I think is a, it really gets better to the idea behind the Greek. He's not talking about like the deepest, most, uh, you know, tr grievous suffering that we can endure as human beings. It's really, uh, it's a word that's talking about just the vast array of hardships that we face in life. Do any of you have trouble? When you say it like that, everybody can say, Amen. Yeah, I got some trouble. And it, it, that's what it means. It could be, you know, everywhere from a, a terminal diagnosis that you just got from the doctor all the way through, uh, you know, maybe mental illness or recurring depression or bouts of anxiety or uh, fighting with the enemy within against the flesh or the refrigerators broke down, you don't know what to do or you're not going to make your bills this month or just the stresses and pressures of everyday life, just the trouble that we face. James says, does anybody have trouble? Meaning, it's kind of a rhetorical question, right? Yes. Uh, and he says, let him pray. And is this a a prayer for deliverance. Oh God, get me out of this. Sure. It's all kinds of passages that call us and encourage us to pray that God would deliver us out of trouble. However, in James, in context, most often, James is calling us uh, to focus on, things, on, on, on praying for the strength to endure the trials. The trials that God has providentially blessed us with uh, in order to strengthen and grow our character and change us who we are from the inside out. Uh, James would say from the very beginning of, the, of, the, of this book, he says what? He says, count it all joy when you see any trials. So this is probably in James' mind the prayer uh, to, for the strength to endure, to endure this trial with a godly spirit, with a grateful spirit, knowing that it's God's blessing to us. Uh, and cheerful. You know, as, as the word, as a, it's a good translation, it really suggests uh, not outward material circumstances, but the inward state of your heart, the emotional state of cheerfulness or gratitude. Uh, is anyone cheerful? Is anyone in a good spot, we might say? Are you, good, are you in a good place? You know? And that happens too, doesn't it? <laughs> sometimes overnight. Sometimes you just don't even know why. All of a sudden you're like, my life is falling apart, but I'm cheerful. If anyone is cheerful, 
What does James say? He says, sing praises. Uh, and that's not metaphorical singing in your heart. I think it, it's really, a, it's a literal ex, ex, exhortation. So he's saying, sing praises. He's like being so, be, be, let your gratitude, let your cheerfulness. He's saying, I think like recognize the cause. What is the, who is, what is the reason why you have cheerfulness? Because of the goodness that's in your life. Because you're in a space where you're recognizing all of God's blessings to you. And you've achieved a state of gratitude and cheerfulness. And he's saying, let that internal gratitude and cheerfulness literally bubble over into audible praise for God. I have this, this prayer. Sometimes I pray uh, when I'm not cheerful. <laughs> and I ask God for gratitude because gratitude... Is way better than happiness, I think. Gratitude is, is way more stable and uh, pleasant and beautiful state to be in than just happy, right? Gratitude implies that you've been given everything, uh, everything you have by the Lord, and that grateful response is so free. I pray that God would make me as grateful as I ought to be. And then I pray, sometimes I pray, Lord, I pray you would make me as grateful as you as I ought to be, so much so uh, that the that your praise just supernaturally bubbles up from within me and spills out onto everyone in my presence. I think that's what James is talking about. We, when we're joyful in those moments, to give God praises and let His let the praises be known to all those around us, uh, so that people would know where the source of our joy and the source of our strength and the source of our cheerfulness comes from. And here's the thing. What is, he, what is he painting a picture of here, right? He's painting a picture of the realistic rhythms of life. The realistic rhythms of life. That life isn't always all cheerfulness. Life isn't always, you know, like sometimes... I think culturally there's a big pressure on us to think that for the most part our lives need to be uh, uh, just full of rejoicing and, and, um, and we need to be upbeat and, on, on, and up emotionally all the time and if we're not, that means something's wrong and we've got to figure it out and fix it. But James is saying there's a natural and realistic rhythm of life where both of those elements and everything in between them is the natural rhythm of life. Sometimes life is going to be cheerful. And we should practice that. And we should shoot for that. We, should, we talked uh, in a sermon series a while ago about practicing the disciplines of joy. The things that we can do to seek that joy, that cheerfulness that the Lord has for us. But there are other times when we're going to be, when we're going to have hardship, when we're going to have trouble. Uh, and the Bible is super honest about that, and we should be too. When we think that we're always supposed to be up here in this mood, we kind of set us ourselves up for unrealistic expectations and failure. When the Bible's really honest, there's a lot of our time in this world that's going to be spent in sadness and in trouble and in hardship. And we can be super honest about that. And even honest with God about it. I heard this, this quote. 
Oh gosh, I'm gonna mess it up right now. It said something about, you know, complaining about life to God is a psalm. There's another part that was in there. But God encourages us uh, and, and gives us gives us the permission and the right to have trouble and be sad. Psalms are loaded with this. Psalms have the heights of exaltation, which I love that word, which literally means you're literally shouting and dancing and, and bodily worshiping God. It's a hard word for Presbyterian worship, but it's all over, all over the Bible. And, and then there's Psalms like Psalm 88. It just, there's no resolution to it. It ends with, and darkness is my only friend. That, as somebody who's like, often suffers with depression, that psalm is my jam. Amen? amen. Can I get an amen? amen. <laughs> and so, man, that's good. It's, it can be released. It can be refreshing. It can be, it can, be it can take a lot of pressure off, off of us to realize that that's what life is. Sometimes it's up. Sometimes it's down. And what's the fortification in either sense? Form prayer. The fortification of our hearts. What do we do to prepare our hearts against the attack of the enemy? If we're in trouble, we pray for strength, for endurance, for deliverance, for patience. Uh, if we're cheerful, our prayer is praises to God. Gratitude. Uh, each one... Uh, and the verbs present, uh, the verbs suggest like a continuing state. And so I had uh, one of our, our, Julius Kim, one of our teachers would talk about, about establishing a rhythm of prayer in your life so that you are always praying, always, I think Spurgeon said, I can't remember when I prayed for more than five minutes, but I can't remember going five minutes without prayer. Kind of like that, you know? I mean, maybe in the morning or whatever your time is, you spend more time in prayer, but all throughout the day, establishing these rhythms of prayer which bring us and focus us on God and the eternal reality rather than either the, fle the fleeting trouble or the fleeting cheerfulness of this age. It helps focus our mind on the solid so that we can weather the storm in everyday life. Okay, that's the first one, level one. fortifying our hearts in everyday life. Level two, fortifying our hearts in spiritual exhaustion. And this one is a little more tricky. I'm going to take a little bit more time on this, okay? When I first became a Christian in 2005, the Lakeland revivals in Florida were all the rage. And there was an evangelist named Todd Bentley, uh, and they were drawing tens of thousands of people to this tent revival in Lakeland, and he was supposedly healing people on stage and raising people from the dead, uh, just all kinds of craziness. And I remember like looking at this, looking into it as a new Christian, and there was a news, a national news, NBC or somebody had gone now, had gone down there to record what was going on. And I remember, the saddest thing I remember seeing is this boy, maybe eight, nine years old, with the, you know, the, the crutches that, that would come up and, and hold on to the arm on either side. It looked like he had muscular dystrophy or something similar to that. 
kind of hobbling across the stage towards the sky and they prayed over him for God's healing of sickness and the kid like dropped his crutches and kind of like barely made it off to the side of the stage and down the steps and as Todd Bentley uh, turned his attention back to the business of juicing everybody for cash the camera crew caught up with this kid who had collapsed just off stage and was choking back deep sobs because now he had a dual crisis. He walked up on the stage with a crisis of health and he walked off that stage with a crisis of health and a crisis of faith because obviously in his mind, in the mind of all those who were there, the only reason that it didn't work, that he wasn't healed was because he didn't have enough faith. And whenever, whenever this kind of spiritual violence is perpetrated against God's people by, by, by wolves like Bentley, do you know what Bible proof text they point to to justify their behavior? <laughs> right here. Let's listen to it. Listen to what this says. Verses 14 and 15. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Not one, not two, but three hard promises in a row, straight up future tense verbs, not maybe, not subjective, God will do this. God will do this. And so, we come to these, you know, the commentaries that come to this section, and you're like, well, how do we deal, how do we deal with this? And all of the, you know, the, uh, the conservative commentators, the non-charismatic, non-Pentecostal commentators come to it and start doing the hard cessationist shuffle around it. You know, they're like, well, what it really means is, uh, you know, and they try to, you know, make excuses for why these hard promises don't really mean what it says. And what it comes down to, it, the argument is, but what they say is, well, what it means is, because we always have to take into consideration God's providence and God's sovereignty, that it really means God will do this if it fits God's will for this particular case in this particular moment. Okay, maybe, you know, that's true for a lot. That is true for prayer. We know that. But let's apply that same principle to some other hard promises that God makes us and see how that flies, right? Let's look at uh, Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved if it happens to fit within God's providence and his particular will for this particular circumstance. I don't think we want to say that. Uh, what if, uh, you know, we every week in the Lord's Supper, I read John 6, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. If 
it happens to fit God's will for that particular person in that particular circumstance. I, wouldn't want, I don't want to add that clause on all these other promises of God, so how can I be consistent and add those conditions on these promises? And yet, what? We know for a fact that God doesn't always heal people, right? We know for a fact that people earnestly, with deep faith, pray to be healed of various illnesses and God in his sovereignty and providence chooses not to heal them. Even Paul prayed to the God to remove the thorn from the flesh. God said, no. Even Paul, who healed tons of people, towards the end, 1 Timothy, he says he had to leave one of his good friends in another city sick. Wasn't able to heal him for some reason. And so we know that we know that God doesn't always heal people even when the prayer is deeply faithful. What a pickle we have here. How are we to go forward? How are we to look at this? Well, there is another school of thought on this. And I'm, I, I'm convinced that this is the this is the right reading, however, i got to tell you, I'm going against the best commentators. <laughs> Douglas Moo wrote the best book on James, and he disagrees with this, and I always, it always, like, makes me shudder going against, like, the best commentators on, in the field, but, man, I read, I read through his argument, you know, and, and meditated on it, and it just didn't make sense. I am convinced that this other school of thought on this is the right way to look at that. And here, here's what it is. First, before I even get into this, disclaimer to set up. There are uh, a thousand scripture passages that encourage us to pray in faith for physical healing. That's true. So I'm not saying at all that we shouldn't pray that God would physically heal people. I think we should totally do that. However, we can't, uh, we can't bind God to that request. Like the two, I like to say the two most important forgotten words in Christian theology are ordinary and extraordinary. Ordinary meaning the things that God has promised. He's attached his promises to you. If you do this, or I promise I will do this for you. Uh, and extraordinary are things that God may do, but he may not. And so we can pray for those things. We can pray for them earnestly. We can pray for them expectantly. But we can't bind God to them and, 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 and believe that he has to come through with things like healing people who are sick. Okay? Disclaimer. So here's the deal. Verse 14. Is anyone sick? That word sick, astheneo, it's a Greek word. Also, about half the times it means weak physically weak or spiritually weak or exhausted or kind of beat down, right? Uh, also in verse 15, the one who is sick is a, is a it's one word, it means, it's a, it's a word, it's a participle off the word kemno, and also the number one meaning of that is wearied or fatigued. So, what I think this is saying, it's talking about uh, being, being weak in faith, being wearied or fatigued in your faith. What's the whole book of James about? What's the context of the book of James? It's about perfecting your faith. It's about 
increasing, it's about weary people increasing and perfecting their faith so that they can make, so they can make it through this evil age, right? And if you read it like that, is any of you, are any of you weak? Are any of you spiritually exhausted? Let the one who is spiritually exhausted come to the elders, and the elders will anoint that person, and the prayer of faith will deliver that person. And then when you see it like that, the rest of it all kind of falls into place. Without, without which, this understanding, a lot of these next verses just don't really make any sense at all. For example, uh, you know, it says the prayer of faith will deliver. That's the word. The word deliver is saved. The same way the word we use for saved all the way all over the Bible. Delivered doesn't necessarily have to be from sickness, although it can be. It can be delivered from either sin that's entrapped that person or delivered from their spiritual exhaustion. Uh, and then the next, it says that the Lord will then raise him up. That's the word that's always used for resurrection. God will raise him spiritually out of the spiritual exhaustion. And then it says the Lord will forgive his sin, which totally fits, right? If there's any sin involved, it's caused that spiritual weakness or spiritual exhaustion. Otherwise, you know, maybe we have to say that that sin is causing this physical disease in some way, shape, or form, which is possible. But. And then from there, it goes on to exhort everyone to confess our sins to each other and to pray for each other so that we might be healed, right? It, it, unless James is calling for, like, us to use prayer as a bulk war against physical illness all the time, it just makes more sense to say that this application moves forward out into the community saying, because, listen, because it's so easy for any of us to be overwhelmed and to become spiritually exhausted, the way we fortify ourselves and fortify each other against the enemy attack is to be constantly confessing our sins to one another so the enemy doesn't get footholds and spark resentments and cause divisions and to be praying for one another. To be praying for one another so that that fortifies our hearts uh, and lifts us up and protects us against spiritual exhaustion. And finally, I think put the nail in it, is the anointing with oil. The word that James uses is the perfect word there's a couple of choices he could have, but it's the word that talks about, a, that, that, that specifies a real physical anointing with oil, not a metaphorical anointing. But it's the word that talks about a physical anointing that's in the same vein as the way the priests were anointed or set apart for God in the Old Testament. And so it's really this physical sign. God does that all the time. He gives these physical signs of spiritual realities by anointing that oil on the person it's saying it's reminding them this physical sign that you have been set apart you belong you already belong to God because you are in Christ uh, you have been set apart and anointed by the spirit and the spirit is the down payment of the promise that you will be seen through this and so that physical model of the spiritual reality of our spirit is used in conjunction with the prayer to remind us 
and to sink that grace deep into our hearts that we belong to God and that's never going to change. And that all together God promises to lift us out out of our weakness will lift us up out of our spiritual exhaustion. And so that's the fortification. Maybe the best the best news about this whole passage is that there there is that fortification. Uh, and that it's and it's backed up by these hard promises by God. Have you ever been spiritually exhausted? Have you ever just gotten to the point where you're just like, just so discouraged that she don't even want to go to church? So discouraged you just have trouble praying. You just get so discouraged by life uh, that even the simplest spiritual exercises or disciplines just become almost untenable. God says there's a remedy for that that he's given us in the church. It's a picture really and, and lifts up how important the church is to our spiritual well-being and health. How, how hard it is to be a lone Christian. That God has given us elders in the church, ordained men, and given them this, uh, this power, this, uh, this privilege where he says, you go to that person who is obliterated, who is worn out, who is ready to give up, and you pray for them and anoint them with oil, and God has these hard promises on it that he will lift them up out of their spiritual weakness, out of their spiritual exhaustion, and strengthen them with the wings of eagles. And maybe the best evidence for this, or not maybe the best, but a good, another final evidence for this is that it works. And I've seen this. I've seen this time and time again. People have come to us as elders. I've brought people in. I've said, hey, come, come in. Let's come here and, 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 and do this. And we anoint them with oil. And people who are literally flailing go from flailing to on fire, like within the week. And so listen, avail yourself. If you're, if you're buying this, and if you're not, that's okay. Totally understand it. You can try and figure out how those hard promises <laughs> apply to healing people with physical sickness. Uh, but if you are buying it, consider availing yourself to this. That's something the elders of our church are ready and able to do for anybody. If you are being overrun by depression, if you are being overrun and just... Man, it's you're about ready to give up, let us know. And let us pray for you. And let us anoint you with oil. And God promises that he will restore you and strengthen you in your heart to continue the race. And we have need of endurance. Amen? Amen. So level one, fortifying our hearts in everyday life. Level two, fortifying our hearts and spiritual exhaustion and level three is the most serious. James is ramping it up as you can tell here. Level three is fortifying our hearts in mortal danger. Fortifying our hearts 
in mortal danger. Professor at Covenant Seminary, Robert Peterson, he tells a story about how these, there's a couple of elders, good elders from New Life Philly, Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, who had a member who had ended up leaving his family and moved out of state uh, and was pursuing uh, an affair with another woman. And these elders chased this guy down, good elders, just didn't let him get, a, you know, just didn't let him just run off the field entirely. But, you know, graciously giving him, you know, plenty of space, not with any, like, coercion, but just kept in contact with him, kept in contact with him, and finally, you know, eventually he agreed to meet. They went to the other state. They sat down with him. Uh, and, you know, the guy said, he goes, he said, the reason that it, this all happened was he just got tired of fighting against the sin. And I mean, when I heard that story, I could relate to it, man. I, mean, I can, I relate to that. How you know? I think Romans eight, in particular, the suffering that Paul is talking about in Romans eight is the suffering we experience fighting against ourselves, fighting against the old man, fighting against the flesh, the ever-present sin that tries to just hijack and hoodwink everything we do. But how exhausting that can be, and that spiritual exhaustion can get to the point where people break and they give in. As Paul says in Galatians 1, they are overrun with sin. So much so that they walk away from Jesus. But that Galatians 1 passage, I love that word. It really talks about that word overrun. It's the word you use for being like overrun by a bear in the wilderness. <laughs> Because it's kind of like the same thing, amen? Does that feel like that? You're like trying to mind your own Christian business and here comes the bear, pummels you. And sometimes it gets so bad that people give up, they break, they give in, and they walk. Uh, have you ever felt like that? That's not the only reason people walk, but it's a big one. Sometimes people walk because they're deceived. Their hearts, our fallen hearts, want something so bad that we can't have that we make up all sorts of reasons and excuses why this behavior is perfectly compatible with our Christian faith. And they, and they, and they begin to worship a different Jesus and practice a different Christianity. And so they walk all the same. And sometimes people walk because they were never in Christ to begin with. But here's the, here's the predicament that we have as Christians, as elders. When we bring people into membership in the church, we're called to have a, 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 charitable, a charitable view of their profession of faith. If they profess Jesus, if they have a good understanding of the gospel... We are to have a charitable understanding of that and, and assure them that their faith is true, bring them into fellowship of the church and begin to disciple and, and bring them in church discipline, which means not punishment, but training up in righteousness. We look for growth. We look for fruit. Sometimes it's little. Sometimes it's big. Sometimes it's spurts. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's down. Sometimes it's up. Y'all know. Y'all know. A million caveats with that, right? We look for that. 
And when someone walks, when someone leaves the church, we, um, as people, sometimes it's hard for us to know why. Maybe they're exhausted. Maybe they're deceived. Maybe they're not saved. Not sure. Uh, sometimes it can be impossible to tell the difference. And so James really speaks to this in the last two verses of the letter. He says, listen, from 19 and 20. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now that wanders from the truth, that's not, that's not a little, you know, a little sidestep. That's not a minor thing. That's always used in the sense of wandering away from a saving faith in Jesus. Wandering away from the fold. Completely. It's not somebody who's, you know, wandering in truth and, you know, has a pattern of sin in their lives. Uh, but it's still, you know, coming to church, still faithful, still repentant, still in the fight, still like, you know, saying, be merciful to me, God, a sinner. Somebody who's bounced, walked away. It's, it's one of Paul's best friends in the New Testament, one of his co-workers, a guy named Demas. was a supporter and a helper to Paul all throughout his ministry. And then at the end, Paul's ministry, we tell, we hear Paul say that Demas, having loved this world more, has abandoned me. Literally left him in prison. Demas went off, left the faith, and went back, uh, went back to uh, follow his fortune in the world. It's the case of the man in Corinth, where Paul calls the Corinthian church to hand this person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Uh, he may still even, you know, be coming to church, but he has abandoned the faith. And in that, in that case in particular, in Corinth, Paul says, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his soul might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What is Paul? Paul is optimistic that that man is a Christian. However, he's not omniscient. I think we like tend to assume, we tend to assign omniscience to the apostles, especially. Just figuring that they should know, like, what's up with everybody in the deepest, you know, deepest part of their hearts. And you just, nobody, not Paul, nobody, not us, nobody but the Lord can see the person's heart. And so Paul's optimistic, but he's not omniscient. He doesn't know. And so, listen, the scariest thing, though, that story about the two elders that went to track that man down who was living in sin, uh, they tracked him down. The scariest thing they said to that man was that guy was, you know, that guy was a, he was a good Calvinist, right? He came from a good church. And so in the midst of their conversation, he was like, look, guys, you know I'm just overrun with sin. You know I'm saved. And they looked him dead in the eye, and they were like, listen, as long as you are this far out of accord 
and in this deep rebellion against the Lord and refusing to repent, neither we nor anybody can give you any assurance. You might be saved. You might have that security, but what you can't have, what you don't have, is assurance as long as you stay. As long as you stay in this in this rebellion. And you might say, but, but, but we're good Calvinists, we're saved by faith. Yes, that's true. That's true, but we're also not omniscient. If someone walks, maybe they're exhausted. Maybe they're deceived. Maybe they're coming back. Maybe they were never of us to begin with. And we can't tell. That's what makes it so terrifying and so heartbreaking and why James is able to say that to bring someone back from that state saves his soul from death and covers a multitude of sins. And so look, as serious as this is, look, it's also hopeful, right? What is James saying? He's saying that's a real possibility. So we should be encouraged by that, especially if you have any loved ones who have walked I know how painful that is. I don't know if there's anything more painful. I mean, the thing that keeps me up at night more than anything else is the thought that one of my kids might walk. It's the thing that keeps me, like, marathon prayer sessions when I wake up in the middle of the night. Can't imagine. I, we have, our church, me personally, we have had people who were family we loved so deeply that got up and walked. And I don't know their state. I had to tell them. I had to be the bad guy and say basically what those elders said. Your soul is in mortal danger because I'm not omniscient. I have good, I have, I have, I'm optimistic. I think, you know, God's going to break you up. God's going to let you get beat up and you're, and you're going to come back and that's going to be part of your testimony to help other people who suffer, struggle with some of the same sin, but I don't know. So it's hard and it's terrifying and it's difficult, but it's hopeful, right? James isn't saying, knock the dust off your sandals. He's saying, implicitly, what's he saying? He's saying the one who brings them back. What's he saying? Go bring them back. Say, be engaged in that. For any of us that have friends that have walked, or people that we love who have walked, he's saying, be engaged in bringing them back. And I know that can be really tricky too. A lot of times the relationship gets totally busted and you can't even talk anymore. But we can pray and we can fast. We can do a lot of things in hope that God is able uh, to bring them back. Man, that was my life, right? When I was, I, which, I don't know when I was saved. I think it was December 12, 2015. But I got friends, Satanist friends from my band days, right? Death metal, like practicing Satanist musician friends who I am still friends with. They come and talk to me about how I used to talk to them about Jesus. They used to call me a dark Christian. 
because I was like kind of like them, but I believed in Jesus and I could talk to them about it. And then for 15 years, it was like zero fruit in my life, right? I mean, unless you count like negative fruit as fruit <laughs> or like fruit for, you know, for evil as fruit. Zero fruit. Nobody would have thought I was a Christian, much less me. And then all of a sudden in God's timing, boom. Because of a lot of fortifying prayer from my family and God's irresistible call and his providential timing. Listen, it's, it's encouraging, 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 encouraging. I'm trying to encourage you. If that's somebody you know, be encouraged and keep after it because God knows exactly what to do with them. And he is able to bring them back. Amen? Now let me, let me conclude with this. Three, three quick big takeaways from this. I know we're running short on time here. But I want to just draw out three big, three big takeaways from all of that. The first is, the first is the foundational position of prayer in, in fortifying our hearts against, against the, the, the bombing, against the attacks of the evil one. In every one of those situations, from top to bottom, from regular life all the way down to mortal danger, the main method of fortifying our hearts against the bombing runs that are coming is prayer in one shape, form, or another. It's really, it's the practice of being drawn into the eternal reality and kind of having, you know, a, a foothold there. Kind of having a one foot in the next age, which really is a biblical concept. Jesus says that, that we like already belong to the new age, although we're already still, you know, but, but we're still here. Prayer is this constant connection with the, with the age to come. Really, one of the most awesome ideas in all of scripture is that by the power of the spirit, we've been put in touch with the powers of the age to come as believers. And God calls us to be engaged in that and to exercise it in every minute of life, which is tied in with the second thing, which is the power of God's people in this age. Listen to the, listen to the power that we have in that. He literally equates us with Elijah. Now, I think of OT saying, you know, I know we did a series on epic fails of the patriarchs, right, to show that we are like, we're all the same. Uh, but he says that Elijah was a man with a nature just like us. He's saying Elijah is just like you. Uh, and because we have the Spirit, we're actually in a better position than any of the prophets of the Old Testament. Or because we have the full revelation, we understand the mystery of redemption even better than the prophets did of old. Uh, and we have that with all the power that Elijah had in prayer, God says we have too. How would you pray if you knew and you believe, if we really believe that we were like on par with Elijah? I mean, it'd be like, you know, if you're playing golf, if you knew you played as good as Tiger Woods, you'd be like out on that course every day, right? I mean, we have the same power in prayer as Elijah did. And third, finally, 
and most importantly, the power of Jesus in and through this. Throughout this whole book, always the foundation of everything that James has been saying, sometimes right off a of camera, sometimes in the camera, the foundation is uh, that has been the gospel and the finished work of Christ and what he has accomplished for us that gives us these privileges, that gives us this ability to even engage in these things, to engage in this fortification, right? In this, in this very passage, we're called righteous, the righteous prayer, the prayer of the righteous man. Why are we righteous? Because we've been given the righteousness of Jesus. Uh, it tells us that we have seen the purpose or the end, the end goal of the Lord, which is his compassion and his mercy. In, in relation to Job, what was that? Job was restored tenfold, everything he lost. And we see in the cross... Jesus restores for us a millionfold everything that was lost, period. So that we're not guessing here. This isn't a maybe this will happen. Maybe uh, God's going to come through. Maybe we'll have this power. Maybe the Spirit will give us these, you know, this, this fortification. It's a sure and certain truth. And ultimately, it's God who fortifies our hearts, not us. Listen to what Paul says. In 1 Thessalonians, I'll close with this. Talking about the same stuff, Paul says, so that the Spirit will establish your hearts. Blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. It means that while we are called in our responsibility for sure to be working towards that fortification, ultimately the bigger reality behind the scene is that God is using all those things and many other things that we can't see to build us up and to fortify our hearts and to strengthen us. And because it's His work ultimately and not ours, it means that it won't and can't fail. So just as eventually weather the farming and see it through, the attacks of the enemy will end and God promises He will see us through evil age. He will shore us up against the bombing of the enemy and he will bring us in to the new creation. Amen. That is a hopeful and encouraging thought. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the beauty of your word, the promises that are in it, that are beyond our wildest comprehension. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have a grip on reality, not reality as we want it to be. I pray you would help us from, or keep us from buying in uh, to the lie that somehow we create our own reality and that what we believe, therefore, uh, creates what is truly real. But that we would see the world as it truly is, your revelation to us would let us know that we are behind enemy lines, that this is, there is a spiritual war that we are engaged in. And although much of our time is spent in the everyday life between hardship and trouble and cheerfulness, there are times of, of deep exhaustion and weakness and sometimes even a break, Lord, where we try to run. 
And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that behind that, you are shepherding us. You are guarding us. And you are keeping us within the fold. Lord, that if we break, you will pick us up. If we run, you leave the 99 and you chase us down. If we are exhausted and weak, you've given us provision in the church to lift us up and a promise, a hard promise that your spirit will restore us. And all of this is possible, Lord, because of Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross, Lord. So I pray that you would encourage us and refresh us and help us to fortify our hearts to protect us from the enemy and see us through this evil age and out on the other side. We pray this in Jesus' name.